Hello and welcome to the Hello Darkness Therapy Podcast. I am your host, Esther Edelkoff. In today's episode, I interview Elisheva Mishninov. Elisheva is a therapist and crisis counselor whose practice is rooted in Jungian depth psychotherapy, mystical wisdom traditions, and internal family systems. Elisheva's work operates at the intersection of soul activism and radical compassion. You can follow her work at at Elisheva Therapy on Instagram. Without any further ado, here is today's episode. Hello, Elisheva. Welcome. Hi, Esther. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming in today. Of course. Um... I guess we'll just jump right in. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your journey, which you're still on, which is so exciting to become a therapist. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, hmm, these questions of like, who are you and what's your journey and where did it start? It's always kind of complicated because it's like where do I start do I start when I was like five and it was like the first time I remember hearing spiritual ritual music and being like I think this is the voice of like my soul like I feel like the activation that's happening right here in my chest is like soul activation um or when I was like in third grade and I remember being coming really curious about like how do I pull myself up on my bootstraps and get out of being a resource room for all my classes and not having any friends and how do I like cultivate success? Um, Or, you know, hitting rock bottom, getting kicked out of high school, um, my body shutting down for half a year, um, being out of school and, and really kind of creating a new way of showing up from that point forward. Um, but I would say that my work is really, I find, at the intersection of psyche and soul. Um, and psych, the Latin word for psyche is soul. And um, I'm very deeply influenced um, by the Jungian tradition mm-hmm. as well as the Jewish mystical tradition. And in my life, I've kind of had this like parallel process of studying Jewish study and comparative religion very, very, very seriously. And at the same time, I have um, a background in cognitive science, positive psychology, now psychotherapy, Jungian and IFS, uh, with strong Jungian IFS influences. And I really, for a while, there were kind of like two tracks. Like I had, Mm. um, I went to Israel and I did my year in seminary and I studied in a Chabad seminary and then I came came back to Crown Heights at 19 and I didn't want to stop learning and I um, continued at seminary. What did learning mean to you at that point? I know it's a broad term. What was the act of learning? Um, Well, I'll circle back and I'll just finish, but then I was a Jewish studies scholar at Trisha for two years and Mm. then I went to JTS, so I kind of had like this big Jewish studies career and then at this side I was doing the psychology Um, and so they were kind of like parallel and now they're kind of merging Um, but at the time what did learning mean to me when I was in Israel Um, it seems like you were so drawn to it I'm curious I was always I've always been drawn to the architecture of the soul Um, and I think that my relationship to Jewish mysticism is an interesting relationship Um, first of all I've, I have the pleasure of having very deep roots in that tradition um, and um, really being able to like explore it with some depths because I obviously like I have the language capacity. It's in my family, it's second generation exploration. So there's some, there's some nuance and complexity and weightiness and depth to it. But I also think what's special, what my experience has been with um, spirituality is that I've had a relationship to it that has been outside of the utility that it has offered me. So my relationship to learning hasn't been like, how can I be happier? Or how can I be Mm. more successful and using it as like a tool to accomplish something it's always been how can I respond to the call of the soul which has has had its own hunger and its own value in responding to it outside of this kind of 
you know, utilitarian perspective yeah. of like another tool in the toolkit to get you something. It's so interesting because I find like a lot of times people start therapy and they're like, I'm doing it for to be happy. I'm doing mm. it to feel better. And I think when you're deep in the work, it's so much more than like, what has this done for me lately? It's more like I'm on a journey and I'm here and I have to be here and I'm it's not so much like results oriented when you're able to shift out of results there's so much to know and to see and to learn and to you get it's ironic when you stop asking yourself what am i getting out of it you get so much more out of it absolutely absolutely um definitely definitely and i think that the it's there's there's such a pro there's such a shift I think going from this idea of like trying to get rid of all the difficulties and get rid of all the injuries and get rid of all the wounds and get rid of all the pain to shifting it from what I call like a soul work perspective, which is like the wound is actually not only acquired but required. And mm. the pain is not only something to get rid of, but the pain is here to teach you something. And yeah, not only are we trying to um, not only are we trying to get rid of the wound, but we're trying to really understand why the wound chose us and to like deeply listen to these experiences. So like in, instead of just being like, okay, how can I, um, you know, pay this amount of money for a session and, you know, do this and this and this, and then never have these more complicated or hard feelings, but how can we like learn to really engage with those feelings to know why they're here and what they're trying to tell us yeah there's such a spirituality i see like deeply embedded in the way you see psychology i'm curious how you have found that to be in your schooling because i know schooling can yeah. be very like i don't know my schooling personally was very cognitive behavioral yeah. very scientific everything empirically based and yeah. there's a lot of value to that but you miss the transcendence yeah that. yeah absolutely absolutely mm. um so i have my own teachers like i'm very uh, people that are familiar with this work that kind of know different schools of thought may be able to tell like i'm very deeply rooted in the Jungian tradition and James Hillman is like my, like a column papa, mm -hmm. because his like his work has really opened up a huge door. And then I've studied under um, another big teacher of mine, Francis Weller. Um, but like, like I mentioned in the beginning, psyche actually means soul. And psychology is actually the study of psyche or soul. And it's very interesting because obviously, um, in today's day and age, there's a real push for everything being quantified and everything being materialistic, but uh, materials substantively being able to be held and measured and felt. Um, but there really is a tension when we're talking about these kind of quote unquote soft sciences, when we're talking about what does it mean to help people that are struggling. And you see the, the rub, the rub against, um, you, you see the kind of the quilt becoming to unravel pretty quickly as you poke around in school. For example, like if you study in any of the major like uh, psychotherapy trainings, like I'm trained in social work, one of the main tenets is like self-determinism of the client, right? Which is, so they'll say things like you have to respect the client's self-determinism. But if you push just a tiny little bit, what is the self and what are we respecting, right? Mm. then right away you're outside of the domain of something that can be quantified. Yeah, right really away you're in philosophical and religious territory. So when you ask questions like, what are the self? It's like, oh wow, we actually have 3,000 years of people trying to answer this question of what is the self, right? In the Western tradition, from Plato to Socrates to Aristotle to, to the wisdom traditions, they've all grappled with this question of what is the self. Obviously, contemporary psychotherapy is taking a very radical position. They're saying this self is something that is connected to such deep inherent wisdom that we're actually going to build a code of ethics and say that this ephemeral thing must actually be respected so that's already a radical spiritual and philosophical statement but there isn't a lot of transparency um, about which 
histories of thought, of literature, of philosophy, of religion, have all bled into these conceptions of self, to yeah, these conceptions. It's the tip of the iceberg, but I don't think we really examine what's beneath the surface. Yes. Like, how did we come to any of these conclusions? Because they're quite radical. Very radical. Very, very, very radical. This, uh, there are so many um, beliefs that are really at the tenant of Western conceptions of health and healing and transformation that are religious beliefs. I mean, why we can get philosophical pretty quickly, but just most, you know, why is the idea that suicidal is, is if somebody is suicidal, you have to, if somebody has imminent, is imminently suicidal, you have to try to get them the help to keep them safe. Um, it's a big philosophical debate why somebody should, you know, not have the choice to end their life, but it's rooted in deeply. Um, Judo-Christian ideas of the value of life over death. So it's, you know, as soon as you begin to poke at why do we have these conceptions, why are these important values, why, um, how, why do we believe in the self, why do we believe in life, why, how do we have this capacity that it's important to the sanctity of every single human being, um, despite economic background, despite opportunity. I mean, these are all religious ideas. Um, these are all ideas that, um, you know, different ways to look at them, um, but have been passed down and kind of stewarded by many religious and wisdom traditions. Well, I'm curious because you're, you really sit with both parts of you, and I, I don't even think they're two different parts, they're really one. How has sitting with both your mystical, spiritual, soul side and your um, training in social work been for you? And, the scientific, the scientific side and the training side. So social work, how has social work training been? So I think that like, um, I'm definitely glad I've done it. I think it's given me a very thorough background in like psychopathology um, and understanding, you know, illness um, in a way that you know, I'm happy to have done the thorough training. I think there's like a whole nother podcast we can do on the DSM and mm. what psychopathology is and how it's kind of like viewed today and the ways that like it's really important to just understand that these are all man-made constructs. So for example, like you can't take an x-ray and find depression in the brain, or you can't, you know, do a blood test and find anxiety in the body, right? These are a bunch of people that stood around a table and decided to create these categories. It doesn't mean that there aren't experiences that people really, really need help. It doesn't mean we don't need to like put all culture and society's resources together to figure out how to get people to get help, but there's a whole conversation around like what we consider mm -hmm. pathology and mm -hmm. what we consider wellness. Um, but I do think that I really deviate with many others. I'm not the only, I'm not a lone wolf on this path. Yeah. I think there are many schools of thought that are right behind me where I take issue with a lot of contemporary psychotherapy um, the way, the way so kind of like big, the way the big box kind of therapy coming straight out of school. And I really want to reiterate that I come together with many, many, many therapies and therapists and many schools of thought. So I'm not, this is not against therapy because I think that many of the best and the brightest therapists are sitting right together with me. I think this is just more a conversation of like the kind of perspective that you can come out of coming out of the big box schools and taking yeah. your licensing exam. Um, and um, wow, there's so many, so many things that I think that like contemporary psychotherapy really misses the mark. Um, I think that there's this conception that um, I don't even like really know, well I would say that like one of the big thrusts of the work that, that are, are, I see things as a, through very different thrust is I would say that there's a contemporary view which is like you're suffering from X, Y, and Z and the suffering is a result of the pain you experienced and if you didn't experience that pain or that lack of opportunity or that lack of parenting, bad parenting or that lack of injury in some way, you would be happy and healthy and flourishing yeah. and living a good life. There's, assume, there's an assumption of 
damage at yeah some there's point. this damage and like if only you didn't have this damage you would be thriving and happy and so let's try to like erase the damage and i see things from a like completely different perspective and i see things that like the soul literally picks the wound to bring it into its own initiation and not only, like I mentioned before, is the wound acquired, but the wound is actually required to become the person that you need to be. And in, in this Jungian tradition of like alchemy, there's this old phrase called prima materia, which means the material in the vessel. And that like really in order to do soul work, we need enough material in the vessel mm -hmm. to work with. And these experiences that we have with wound and injury and contrasting of hard and difficult feelings are actually building up the material that you need to do soul work, to mm. become a, an adult in the society. Yeah. And to actually go through the individuation process where you're not stuck in adolescent forever, to become deepened, to become actualized. And we can talk about like the role of therapists and wisdom keepers and elders and clergy people and whatever to help people go through these initiatory processes and to help them know uh, the actually the difference between like traumas and initiations and to help people That's go through that path. That's such an important distinction, yeah. But like this material is, is you know, we need material. We need material to go through our alchemical processes to become initiated into adults or we stay children forever. And we need actually culture and teachers and elders and rituals to contain the experience so that it doesn't blow us out into being traumatized um, and to help us metabolize it and integrate it. But the absence of pain is not a good life. Mm. We have to then go ahead and actually cultivate a good life. We have to go ahead and we have to do we have to do a bunch of things that will actually give ourselves a good life we have to do things that will build self-respect we have to transcend ourselves and be in connection with community we have to you know cultivate a spiritual understanding of our own we have to cultivate a capacity to see and receive beauty and sensuality and relationship and the work isn't just avoid trying to erase all the trauma and the pain yeah but the work is actually to actively understand the messages behind that trauma and pain and then create something in the future. Um, create a life that has components of well-being and satisfaction and depth and joy and connectivity and self-transcendence. And so I'm also very influenced in positive psychology background and I had a lot to do with um, positive psychology. I actually taught one class at the Masters of Positive Psychology program at UPenn. Um, so that's kind of where I think that that's that's one major way that I'm kind yeah. of differ from. I want to sit with this because there's so much here. <laughs> I love it. Like, I think we could spend our whole lives trying to like seek pleasure and avoid pain and like think that's the track to a happy life, but it's so stuck that life we're so reactive and also so avoidant we're not leaning into our lives we're have blinders on towards things that are like pleasurable and we're running away from anything that's uncomfortable and I'll never forget like my therapist told me like in such a dark moment of my life she was like this breakdown is your breakthrough yes. and like that literally got me through it and yeah I think on a personal level, we can say our hardest moments were important. It's so, I find as a therapist, it's so hard to like impart that message lovingly to a patient, not like you deserve it or like, I don't know, I think it's really delicate to impart that message and I think that's where the skill set comes in as a therapist, like yes. this moment is important. But I think if we can live with that, we transcend. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. I think that what often happens when we're having a dark time, when we're in the dark night of the soul, when we're in pain, is we have this primary experience of going through struggle and pain and darkness. And then we have this secondary experience, which is maybe like this second arrow that comes and it kind of like attacks us. And it's this thought or belief of like, I shouldn't be here, yeah, right? I, should be, I shouldn't be here in this suffering. I should be happy when I'm not happy or vivacious or joyful when I'm not in a spring there's one season 
and that's allowed when I'm not in a spring, there's something wrong or maybe there's even something pathological going on and it needs to go out and be fixed. And that second layer of suffering that there's something wrong here um, is a whole nother layer of suffering and I think it really comes out of the culture that we live in and this happiness culture that we started with and the way that we're very impoverished to we're very impoverished in terms of our understanding of how to reap the benefits of other feeling states because we live in such a happy culture mm. that when it's not happy and it's connected to this kind of like mental health culture the dsm culture of like you know um that when you're not in this constant state of happiness we don't really have connection to the fruits of um, the, the, the fruits that bloom forth in other feeling states. And I think it really is the place of therapists that have really taken over kind of like the clergy people and of the wisdom keepers in the culture and civilization to really teach people how to reap the lessons and the stories of other spaces and to kind of gather all the part other, gathered all the exiled parts Right? So there's so many parts of us that we're told by culture or we're told by family or we're told by these messages that these parts are not allowed at the table, right? Mm. The angry parts, they're not allowed at the table. The deeply melancholic parts, those are not allowed at the table. The part fatigued parts, those are not allowed at the table. The sexual parts, those are not allowed at the table. The, um, you know, the silly parts, those are not allowed at the table. And we craft this image of ourself and then we have a cultural image of this is the person that's allowed at the table. And whenever we show up with these other people it's like oh they're not allowed mm -hmm. and I think really the work of the therapist is to help the person gather all the exiled parts and bring them back to the table like come here come here come here I want to know you help the person get connected to the curiosity of wanting to know all the parts because all the parts of us are really play a very important role and when we shut down when we shut down the uncomfortable parts of us, we shut down the pleasure parts of us, we shut down the connected mm. parts of us, when we shut down the, the parts of us that allow us to be seen and known by others. Yeah, when we avoid sadness, we avoid joy. Mm. It's so paradoxical. We just numb our experiences and we numb ourselves. Yes. I'm curious for you, like what you would say Wait, but going back on that thing, sure. it just popped into my mind. I just have to say that my teacher, James Hillman, would always say that people come to psychotherapy to get rid of the pain, but the role of the therapist is to bless the pain. Oh my gosh, I have chills. Yeah, That's I so read beautiful. that, I was just like, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, it's actually interesting, like in the Jewish tradition, when we hear someone has passed away, we like say a blessing then. Yeah. Yeah, like that's, we're encountering this like tremendous pain and we're starting off our encounter with a blessing. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, I wanna jump back to the question. Let's say someone comes to you and they say like, I'm, my pain is unavoidable, I'm hearing it. like. How do I start interacting or uncovering the fruits of my pain, as you said? What would you say? Yeah, yeah. And that is often what happens. Like very often, you know, people kind of crawl into the psychotherapist's office when life has, life has totaled them. Um, and and it's, a, it's really about understanding it's a journey. And I remind my clients that the, the wisdom that they're going to get from the wound and the message that the wound has for them is their message. And they're going to hear it before I hear it. And so I'm going to help them cultivate a listening and to drop down and help them cultivate contact with the wound. But that message is for them and they're going to get it. And sometimes we live with the question for a very long time. Sometimes we find the wound wherever it is and we're living with the question and we're gently asking the wound, you know, what is your message for me? What is your message for me? What is your message for me? Because in the wound has the seeds of our initiation. Um, and sometimes that answer comes to us like this 
And sometimes we're living with the question for a long time and the answer is slowly revealing itself. But it's going to reveal itself to that person, not to me. But when we come to psychotherapy, a big part of the difference between initiation and trauma, so trauma totals us out, initiation takes us from the threshold of adolescent consciousness to being adults, um, is, is contained encounter so an initiation is a contained encounter with death and my teacher Frances Weller talks about this so a therapist comes and we help contain the experience for the person we help bring container we help bring we, we help bring holding to the experience mm. so they can drop into this experience so it can be initiatory and not blow them out not traumatic and so there's many many modalities that I use in the psychotherapy practice to help contain this contact with initiation, with wound, to help really facilitate that listening. Um, and it would depend on the person. I always start with the here and now. So like mm. most, many people think that like you come into the therapy and um, I'm going to be like asking you about your traumas and asking you about your parents and asking you about your upbringing. And a lot of people have this feeling like, I'm satisfied with my experience. I'm satisfied with my family. I feel like I'm going to go talk to, to a therapist and they're going to make me just like focus all on the negative and then I'm going to be unhappy with my family and unhappy with my childhood and unhappy with everything. And, um, and I would just like to say to the person that might be thinking that, that that is a very valid point, that we're not here to just bring attention to all the things that were broken, God forbid. And so we're not just like going around and like searching for the things that might not have been like yeah. built perfectly. It isn't perfectly. a trial of your childhood it's with not, a jury. It's and, not uh, a trial, no, not mm -hmm. at all, God forbid. I really help people come in contact with what's going on right now in the here and now of their life and what needs looking at. And this is not something that the person needs to be able to figure out by themselves. This is what we do together. So we explore it together and we have find a way of really exploring the moment in the here and now, what's showing up, what are the place, places where they feel unresourced, where are the places where they feel like they're longing for more, where are the places where they feel like there's an extreme amount of like flow, connectiveness, inspiration, joy, elation. Um, and really like getting to know what's going on in the here and now and what does the here and now call for, right? So for this person that you mentioned that's like crawling into psychotherapy, that's like in agony and pain, maybe in an active wound state, we get very curious about this state right now, this wound right now. Um, and I use a lot of somatic processes. I use IFS processes to really... What is IFS for people that don't know? Yeah, so IFS is internal family systems therapy and it was created by dr richard schwartz and he came from a systems therapy background so systems therapy is like one of my favorite we're going to talk about ifs in a second but in general family systems therapy is one of my favorite ways of viewing things and what family systems therapy says is that we're so often looking at the individual that has a problem so let's say you have you know the one kid in the family that has an eating disorder and we look at that one kid and we say like why can't they get their act together right why are they stuck in disorder mm. and we don't really see that what's actually happening is one person is holding a wound for the entire family mm. and one person is responding to all the other people in the family system, right? Mm -hmm. So we call a, them the identified patient. <laughs> exactly, the identified patient. So there's the identified patient that is coming into the room, but really their behavior is a response from what's going on around them, and what's going on around them is a response from their behavior. So, and I think even more than a response. It's a function. It, it's working for the family. The family needs them to be the black sheep or the fucked up one or the one that's out of control. It works for the family. Exactly. And that's the system's work, no. right? It's a working as a system and it's a necessary part in the system. It plays a function. So function is a system, system word, right? So it's a whole working system. And essentially, so from like a family systems perspective, it's when you change one person, you automatically change other people. So Esther Perel, who's also trained in a systems perspective, she very famously says, the best way to change your partner is to change yourself, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. a couple is working within a system. So also from a family systems perspective, if there's somebody that's really struggling, a child struggling in the, system, in the family, in some cases, if you take the child out of the family, or 
if you just give the child medication. What you're doing is you're decreasing the stress in the, in the entire system. And that stress may actually be good because that stress might get the entire system to change. And then when we get stress to a boiling point, things rearrange. And so as we keep on looking at things in one tiny part, but we need to look at things systemically. So Dr. Richard Schwartz came from a family systems background, was working with a lot of people in family systems. Um, and he created his theory of internal family systems through working with individuals and noticing patterns. And what he noticed is just the same way as there people exist in a family system outside, there's an internal family system where different parts are responding to each other. We have different parts inside of us and the same way we can have polarizations outside where one person's extreme behavior is causing an extreme reaction in the other person. So if somebody is extremely angry, the other person might not have a lot of access to anger. He saw too that in our internal parts, um, there, it's a constantly balanced out system. So there are you know, polarizations inside of us where you know, we can have you know, one, one part of us that's very extreme, one part of us that's like very extremely perfectionistic, and it can create a polarization of another part of us that wants to, um, that's like, that, that becomes polarized from that perfectionism and will shut us down completely and not be able to do any work. So that's like there's a polarity inside of us. So that's, <laughs> he started noticing that there were all these different polarities. So internal family systems, basically, to like summarize it very quickly, is that there, it, there is one part of us that is self-energy. And self-energy has all the knowledge and the wisdom um, and the connectedness of what we need and how to heal us and all our answers that that like will it'll bring us to spontaneous healing. But what happens is from the perspective of IFS is there was some initial trauma. The way I see it, it's just the experience of coming into the world yeah. is that it used to be self energy was king and was in charge of all the parts. And then we experience trauma or we just experience what it means to be born into this world and be in a scrambled state. And self energy gets kicked off the throne. And instead, other parts of us that are not self energy that are usually trying to protect us or manage us, they start they start driving the car yeah. and the work is what we try to do is we try to get to know all this these parts of us it's not it's not about constantly it's not about only having self-energy then we wouldn't be human and the parts actually have like amazing wisdom as well but what we want to do is we want to have self-energy drive the car so that's kind of the work of IFS is a therapist will guide you towards really understanding all the parts and can helping you connect to your own self-energy. So I think such a valuable part of IFS is the compassionate understanding that all these parts are trying to protect us. Yes, and no bad parts, no yeah. bad parts. Yeah, it's, it's like so important to know that like our most frustrating self-destructive behaviors or ways of living in this world or things that we do really stem from a place of protection. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And I don't know if I mentioned it, but I work on a suicide hotline most ah, days tell of the us week. About that. <laughs> so I work on a suicide hotline most days of the week, and I use IFS a lot in the suicide intervention. Um, and when individuals are experiencing thoughts of suicide, um, it's almost always these thoughts of suicide come to protect the individual from overwhelm. And I really see it with my callers all the time. And I'll just like, you know, ask them like, how are these suicidal thoughts coming to protect you? And they always share the ways that, you know, these suicidal thoughts, they're coming like firefighters that come to save the day. And they come in with their firefighting equipment and they spray the entire house down with water and they don't care the amount of damage that's happening. They're going to come save you. Because there's a fire. Because there's mm -hmm. a fire. And that's exactly what happens with these extreme states of um, behavior or extreme beliefs is um, there's the individual is experiencing extreme overwhelm and these parts come to these kind of like firefighter parts come to save them um, and protect them from the overwhelm and um, it's an extremely it's an extremely compassionate lens to understanding these extreme states um, and behaviors and really understanding the roles that they play I also think 
there's something so rational about it because we tend to think of these behaviors as irrational but if we can understand like why it makes sense on some level then we can normalize these things which have a lot of stigma oh my god absolutely and this is my beef with cbt Mm. um i don't know if you saw but i posted about it on facebook it got a lot of activity i didn't but tell me everything because i have some i think cbt has its benefits but i have a lot of beef with it as well yeah so i have a lot of beef with cbt i think for people that are listening and that don't know what cbt is cbt is cognitive behavioral therapy And it's a process of helping the individual kind of become aware of how their thoughts are influencing their feelings. So let's say I have a thought and the thought is like, I hate podcasting, then I might have all this feeling of being uncomfortable. But if I can realize that this thought of I hate podcasting is the one that is driving the show, maybe I can go back to the thought and I can swap it out for another thought or like a thought like, you know, I don't hate podcasting. I've just never done it enough. So I've never, I'm unfamiliar with podcasting. So that's, and then maybe you're feeling, instead of feeling like so resistant, you'll feel like, oh, I'm actually just a little nervous because I've never done it before. So that's kind of, it's like a very, it's really undermines a lot of the way we look at mental health. A lot of the um, the ways that we have kind of institutional, institutional, impl- institutionally implemented mental health practices are based on these tools. So like in hospitals, in schools, in social emotional learning. And I think on a basic level, somebody being aware that like their thoughts are influencing them and you can be reflective of your thoughts, it's really helpful. I think one of the ways in which CBT, I think does a lot of damage is there's this perspective that there are rational and irrational beliefs and they have a whole bunch of thought traps. These are thought traps and these are irrational beliefs. And I want to really name that exploring it in this way has brought a lot of comfort to people and has really helped people kind of have some space from their beliefs. And I am of the belief that for many people, it's like a junk food sugar comfort but in the long run, it actually erodes their relationship to their own experience of self. And that is because if you're having a thought like, I hate podcasting, and you tell yourself that is a delusion, what happens is all of a sudden you're at war with your own experience. You're Mm. telling yourself, why do I have a broken brain, right? Why do I have a brain that has cognitive delusions, right? There's somebody that has their, their, this perfect way of thinking and the perfect way of thinking always makes me happy. And here I am, I'm having these delusions and I'm delusional and I have thinking traps and Mm. I need to get out of the traps to get to the promised land so I will always be happy versus really what I think facilitating a really deep level of ex- of curiosity about what's going on and coming from an assumption that there is an inherent logic to these thoughts and beliefs, even if they're causing me pain. So from yeah. the IFS model, what we're talking about is, oh, there's an inherent logic, right? It's trying to do something. It's trying to protect me. So instead of being like, oh, I'm having a delusion, I'm having... Um, a um, you know an irrational belief you can say oh right now I have a protector part that's a really loud that's trying to keep me safe oh I'm not a broken person that has irrational beliefs but I'm a person that is there I have a part of me that's really super invested in protecting me and then you can be like wow why is this protector part so loud this protector part is terrified and you can be like oh my goodness I am terrified right now right how can we bring some reverence to the experience that i'm terrified Mm. so what we do is totally different instead of looking at ourselves and saying oh my god i'm an irrational person i need to move towards rationality so i have to be at war with myself swap out my belief states and push ahead to become rational we can say we can bring like oh my goodness do i need caretaking right do i need compassion do i need what what do i need to relax my protector part, to remind myself that I'm okay. So we can see that these things might seem minor, but they really take us to a very different place. Yeah, you shift out of the paradigm of good and bad thoughts, and you see all thoughts as information, um, the quest to know yourself, understand yourself, and 
be aware of what's going on inside of you. Yes, yes. I mean, I was at a training and I heard somebody say, um, my client is having a lot of cognitive delusion. Like she was like, my client is dealing with a lot of social anxiety and she has a lot of, um, she said, cognitive distortions. My child has a lot, my client has a lot of cognitive distortions and she was talking about an Brain adolescent. Yeah. Client, child, I do exactly. that all the time. <laughs> exactly. Um, and she was talking about this adolescent middle schooler who was feeling very socially anxious. And I was like, it, this is such violent language to call your clients really tender thoughts of her anxiety around friendship as distortions. And the words have energetic weight. And as we speak them into reality as mental health professionals, those words take up space. Like what does it mean as mental health professionals that somebody is having thoughts and we're calling them distortions? You know, it's not, doesn't mean nothing. It means something. Yeah, I also, like, we're not in charge of our thoughts. Our thoughts, I think, if you really get philosophical, there's something there's something going on on a soul level about thoughts. They come out of nowhere, and they could be anything. And to label them as good or bad just shuts off the journey that unfolds when you are kind with your thoughts, gentle with them, sit with them, explore them, playful even. Yeah. It's, a, it's exactly the opposite of trying to welcome all these parts deeper into the table. And I do want to mention that these thoughts, the, the, these kind of perspectives really do bring people relief. They, that for some people, I mean, the reason why they got so popular among other, I mean, there's so many reasons culturally, the way we view issues and the way that we like to measure things that's become popular. But it really often does bring people relief because... Um, people can say, you know what, like I need some distance from this yeah. thought. But it's like permission to not believe the thought. Like, oh, it's all or nothing thinking. Like, I don't like, I don't have to choose between A or B. Yeah. I can hold both. That brings a lot of relief. But I think the language around labeling it as a distortion 100%. or a delusion automatically puts you into like the pathology. Yeah, mode. there's something wrong. That's what. Like, so if we can, you know these ideas of actually being reflective about your thoughts and taking a step back and analyzing your relationship to your thoughts is actually something that philosophers and wisdom traditions have been talking about since the beginning of time. So of course, being reflective about your thoughts is something that every single psychotherapy practice will encourage you to do. It will encourage you to kind of have a reflective listening to the role of these thoughts. Um, but exactly as you mentioned, really just noticing the weight of words that like, yeah, we might need to bring a little pushback to the fact that like we're just flying around like the fact that some people that people's thoughts are distorted. Um, and so, yeah, it's a complicated and definitely like heated dis discussion, especially when you talk to mental health practitioners mm. that are like really deeply embedded in it but I think it really like many people can relate to this idea of like what do you mean that I should bring compassion and reverence to my thoughts what about if my thoughts are telling me to to do things that are hurtful to myself or my family like that's obviously a distortion and that's where like like I can just say like 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 deeply grounded in the work that I do with people that are suicidal that are self-interest that are homicidal that are like telling me about like I, I have to assess for homicidality and often people would say like you know they have homicidal impulses or they have been very violent in the past these are the people that I'm working with and when you drop into that experience and you really understand the role the inherent logic that those thoughts play it's a very different perspective and I think for those of us that are listening to this podcast and they're just like when I'm X Y and Z when I do whatever destructive behavior there's no inherent logic in that that's just me being ridiculous or when I spin out in panic or anxiety about whatever there's not no inherent logic about that that's just me I just need to stop doing that I just need to stop doing that that's mm. ridiculous I'm being um, Oof, over the top ouch. So yeah much shame in that. there's so much yeah. shame in that to kind of what happens when you replace that with like you know what role are these thoughts playing um, you know what what are these thoughts protecting me from what am I afraid might happen you know if I if I didn't think these thoughts or, you know, when we bring a little bit more gentleness and compassion 
Um, and I think, you know, culture, in culture we really, you can see this showing up a million places where there's this resistance to being compassionate, having a really compassionate response to dysfunction. And there's this tendency to really just like say, no, it's, it's, it's wrong, it should be different. Yeah, we live in the era of cancel culture where we think we can get rid of things by condemning them. But if that worked... Exactly. We would have gotten rid of everything at this point because there's a lot of condemnation. Exactly. And I think it was Freud said, where you resist, you, there's persistence. What you resist persists. Um, and things just get pushed that you build, you actually build power behind the resistance. So the more you tell yourself that, um, that something is not okay, shouldn't be there, you're actually building a force in opposition to it, to your, 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 you're building resistance. There's so much here. I'm <laughs> curious if you feel like open to sharing what some of your personal experiences with therapy have been. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I have been in therapy for maybe the past seven years. Um, and it like totally informs my journey um, as a therapist. Um, and like what I think has been like missing and what I like hope to bring my clients, um, where my areas of interest have been. Um, and the first therapist I had for the first two years um, and actually had the most bizarre experience because I was pregnant when she was pregnant and she didn't tell me until we were both showing. Oh my goodness. And it like really felt like it really ruptured our therapeutic relationship mm. because I was just like, I'm talking about like being nauseous and I'm talking about like my thoughts and feelings about like having a second kid and you're also having second kid like at the same age. And I was like, I felt so disoriented that like, I was like, I was talking, I would have liked to know who, what I was talking to. Mm. <laughs> um, and so it was like that really ruptured our relationship. But I think eventually I just kind of outgrew her and I was looking for another therapist and I've been working with, um, a very talented gestalt therapist on and off. We did like um, deep, consistent therapy for maybe like two and a half years. And then the past three years, it's kind of been more drop in, in and out. Um, now we're actually seeing each other every other week. Um, um, and he's gestalt Jungian depth work. Um, he's been a big influence on my path. And um, it's really brought home to me the fact i think the journey of my own therapy has really proven me proven to me the power that of that it's the relationship with the therapist that heals yeah. and i think i came into therapy being like okay so we're going to work on these issues and it's the whatever techniques the therapist is going to say or the words they're going to say or they're going to like tell me stuff and i'm going to like write it down and it's the information that heals and i think that it's really seeing that like having a space that you can work through the relational dynamic um, where the re where the relationship is the kind of primary method of the work um, can totally change your life i think um, the experiences of being seen and heard and understood and attuned to have completely changed my life yeah, and I think there's like a word that people like are scared to say when it comes to like the relationship between therapist and client because it's been like the people are hesitant to say it for a good reason, like love. I yeah, think but, yeah. I I think there people are scared of like the sexual transference aspect of yeah. that, but I think they're like in a therapeutic relationship there is real genuine love in the room. Yeah. And it's the it's the genuine love that heals. I mean, mm. it's the love that heals. And um, can't remember who said it, Freud or Young, but like there is no healing without that component of love. Um, and I think like so many people that are on the receiving end of therapy that are working with a relationally based therapeutic model that are receiving that and are touched by that level of attunement and presence and inquiry and curiosity within the field of positive regard and affection um it can be really disorienting yeah like it can be like life jumbling 
And sometimes like clients don't know where to go with that big feeling like, wow, this is just like really activating and the activation is actually the medicine. So like the more activating it is, the more impactful the therapy is going to be. So like if you feel disoriented, it's not a bug. It's, it's like it's, it's a feature, feature, not a bug. Not a bug. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, but clients can often feel like, is it real? Like, is what I'm sp- experiencing real or is it a show? It's such a valid question because yeah. the way therapy is set up, like yeah. you come in, it's like boundaried, you pay for it. And I remember struggling with that question so much, like when I started therapy as an adult, Yeah. like I feel a lot of love here, but like I'm paying. <laughs> like, it's what's... so disorienting. It's so disorienting and um yeah it's 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 interesting it's very interesting work and the I I would say that like if you're working with a good therapist then the love is real because what we're doing is we're that's the work the work is is relation relational and building the relationship and and it's not just what happens in the room it's that hopefully when there's good therapy happening is you'll internalize that dynamic with the therapist and take it for, take it with you forever so the same way we internalize the voices of our parents what you're kind of paying for and investing mm-hmm. in is you internalize a new relational dynamic so it's the work that you do in therapy now but it's like hopefully you know you'll have that voice to refer back to forever more yeah when a client tells me like and i heard your voice in my head asking what would i tell a friend like then yeah. i'm like yes it's working exactly <laughs> yeah i also think like the questions around like the dynamic of between client and therapist like those are the questions that I find patients, clients are most scared to bring up in the room, but I think having those conversations in like a real and genuine way is the work. Yeah. It's the work. It's the work. Yes. For anybody listening to this that's in therapy, tell your therapist when you don't like something. Tell them when tell something them isn't resonating. Tell them all your thoughts about them. Tell them when you're <laughs> upset about at them. Tell them if you're attracted to them. Like, there's so much to work work. through. This is the work. And you're allowed to tell them if you're attracted to them. This is your permission to live. It's actually very powerful to work with an erotic transference. And it will bring up a ton of work. And it will escalate the work that you're doing. And it's so healing to explore that erotic transference in a safe space. Yes. Yes. And of course, you know... A therapist that's being ethical will never transcend a boundary and it is a, it is a completely safe space and you as the client it's your space to share what's in the room for you yeah I feel like we covered all the juicy we, topics you wrung <laughs> me dry yeah um, the famous therapist words were at the end of our time exactly where can people find you Ellie Sheva therapy on Instagram for now I will link to that in the show notes if I learn how to do that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your generosity of spirit. I really appreciate it. Of course, anytime. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you have any questions, comments, or you would like to continue the conversation, you can find me on Instagram at hellodarknesstherapy. Once again, thank you for your support. Until next time, goodbye.